The Hammer, Chapter 26 Madame Torig reeled, and the two living statues barely managed to catch her before she hit the floor. The old woman brushed the gray men back and stepped forward to take the hammer from Corvin's hand. So the legends are true. It does exist as a real object and not just an idea. She looked at the blue markings the hammer was projecting on the floor between them, then pointed the handle up to the ceiling, throwing its light onto the paintings. The same marks ran between two bands that surrounded the faces above them. The words up there were painted from memory long after the hammer was lost to us. I often wondered if they were correct. He stared at the words. What do they say? Three words flow between the circles, truth, mercy, and justice. These are the attributes that a great Corvan must possess to rule the Corps. She looked at him from under thick eyebrows. The legends also say, these are the qualities of the one who will return the hammer to us. Corvin avoided her eyes. But I don't understand how it works. Sometimes it heals me, and other times it hurts me. Sometimes it does what I want, and then suddenly it does nothing at all. Madame Torig directed the blue glow onto Corvin's chest. The light was absorbed into the gray cloth of his cloak. She frowned, and then pointed the light onto the floor at his feet. The hammer judges truth. It has power when held by those who have integrity, those who are compassionate and stand against injustice. But it cannot be used as a weapon. It helps people know what is right and supports them in their choice to follow truth. But it does not give love. That is the responsibility of each individual. Then why would the chief watcher want it? People are easily led. They want to believe someone is telling them the truth so they don't have to decide for themselves. If the chief watcher can convince the people he possesses the truth, he can easily manipulate the masses. But how can he hold the hammer? It punishes those who lie. The look Madame Torre gave Corvin reminded him of Miss Thompson repeating a simple math problem he couldn't grasp. If an evil person shields himself from the truth in some manner, he will appear to others as if he's touching it. But that is just another deception. You have to examine people closely to see if the hammer is freely held in their hands. But deceivers never let others get that close to them. Jorid stepped toward the blue glow. He needs the hammer to destroy hope. Hope gives people ideas, and they search for the truth themselves. If he can destroy hope, the people will willingly follow his plan for the core. Madame Torig nodded. You are right, but I have seen changes lately that suggest larger plans and forces are at work. Older and deeper things are rising to the surface. None of the council ever thought the Rakash would walk freely through our world. A chill went through Corvin every time they said that word. Who are the Rakash? Some call them sightless, others call them seekers. Not many use their real name, Rakash, for we all avoid the truth that we are not alone in this world. I have seen them, Corvin said. They are the blind ones who serve the chief watcher. No, Jorid said. Instead, a greater evil has sent them to keep an eye on the chief watcher, and they have their own way of seeing. Corvin's head swam. Too many bits of information he couldn't fit together. Truth, mercy, justice. If the hammer was truth, what was the medallion? Earlier he thought it was compassion, and that was something like mercy. But where did the justice part fit in? He was about to ask when a young woman came running in from the shadows. The hem of her blue tunic brushed the floor. A short sword hung at her waist. Madame Torig, she said. A company of palace guards approaches the upper gate. In the darkness? 
they are being guided by one of the seekers. Then someone here is drawing him to us through a special possession, something lost that the person desires found. I do not see how there could be any of us in this room, unless they all turn to Corvin. The old woman's eyes bored into him. The woman bringing the report spoke up. The seeker carries a white scarf. Corvin swallowed. It was a gift from Tirith. I left it behind when I escaped from the prison. I didn't have the time to go back and get it. If you are able to cast it from your mind, Madame Torig said, and deny any connection to her, the seeker will be lost. Can you do this? She studied his face intently. Corvin turned his thoughts to Tyrid. He saw her pain when the lizard slashed her cheek and his heart ached for her. He remembered how she touched his face and the scent of her scarf. Madame Torig patted his cheek. I see you cannot. It is a good thing to care for others. We shall talk of this later. Madame Torig turned to the messenger. Go, wake the mayor and tell him to come to me. We will have to fight them in the streets of Kadir and draw them away from the new city. How long before the light? One more segment, the messenger replied. It may be enough. Tell the mayor to meet me at the upper gate. The messenger ran from the room as Madame Torig turned to the tallest of her gray men. You must act quickly. We need the soldiers' fear of the dark and the broken on our side. The gray man shook his head. Our tricks will not fool the seeker. Then we may have to kill him. That's not possible, the gray man replied. Nothing can kill the Rakash. That can. She pointed to the black knife on the floor. It has been done in the past, for the five became the four, and the cloak of deception that allowed their leader to move undetected among us vanished. Our city of refuge was saved from certain discovery and ruin at that time by a great man. She glanced at Corvan. I have been told that the remaining four Rakash have chosen a new leader. Perhaps what he is seeking is the cloak. Corvin resisted the urge to twist the buttons on his garment. If the cloak was that important, then the new leader of the Rakash wouldn't rest until he got it back. He broke Madame Torig's steady gaze and bent to pick up the knife. Everyone took a step back. Corvin pulled the sheath from his arm and put the blade back inside. Madame Torig looked on in admiration until he stepped forward and laid it on the table. Corvin stepped back in embarrassment. Surely they didn't think he would fight the Seeker? There is another way. George stepped up to the table. The Seeker has been told he follows Terran, and to capture him he needs the help of the palace guard. Send your gray men to frighten the soldiers and buy us some time. I will lead Corvin out to the settlements along the river road. We need to take him far beyond where the Seeker can sense him. Then we must send this with him. Madame Torig put the hammer back into Corvin's hand. Her blue eyes searched his face. None of us here can protect it. Since you brought it to us, you must carry it on from here. In time, it will reveal your true purpose. Corvin reluctantly took the hammer and put it back in the holster. Ever since he'd found the hammer, it had taken him farther from his family and from safety. How could he and Kate escape from this nightmare unless someone else would take it from him? George's plan has merit, the tallest gray man said, the coating on his face crinkling as he spoke. But let us make use of our preparations at the lower bridge. We have weakened it so it might collapse in the event of attack from across the river. Instead, let us pull it out from the seeker and his soldiers. We will drown his men and perhaps the river will sweep the Rakash back to his source. Madame Torig looked at Corvin. Is it permitted to do such a thing to defeat evil? They all turned to stare at him. 
Was he expected to decide just because he held the hammer? No one spoke. I think that, well, since the people sent the water to kill your families and children, maybe falling into the water themselves might teach them a lesson? It was more a question than an answer, but the expressions on their faces indicated it was the decision they required. So let it be. Madame Torg turned to the gray men. You four, go frighten the soldiers as best you can. I will take these two through the new city to the water outlet below the bridge. Signal us when the Rakash senses him and begins moving toward the lower bridge. Three of the gray men turned to the small door and vanished from sight against the stone wall of the library. The door appeared to open and close of its own accord. The remaining gray man lightly touched the wounds. The remaining gray man lightly touched the old woman's shoulder. Madam, you are the appointed leader of our city, but if you bring an untested stranger through, the mayor and the elders will rightfully accuse you of breaking the code of the remnant. She smiled and patted his hand. I will bear that responsibility, but I thank you for your warning and your concern. He bowed low and melted away toward the exit. The old woman pointed at Kate. You too will carry her below. Our healer will attend to her while you are gone. Corvin shook his head. I won't leave her behind and risk losing her again. She comes with me. The old woman searched his face, and Corvin steadily returned her gaze. I will allow this, for I understand that this girl does not belong in this world. I know that if she does not soon return to her sphere, she will certainly die. Her eyes narrowed. You, on the other hand, may yet belong to this world, or perhaps this world will belong to you. But I'm not... She jabbed her thick finger into his chest. Do not think for a moment that I do not understand what is possible for you to become, either for our good or for our final destruction. That choice you have yet to make. May your desire for the truth be guided by love. She moved past him to pick up the broken pieces of her staff. As she headed for the door, Corvin noticed she walked just fine without it. He picked up the front of Kate's litter and pulled it toward the edge of the table. Jord hesitated for a moment before he picked up his end. Corvin glanced back. The black knife was gone. Corvin followed the old woman out the main doors into a dusty lobby. The remnants of vines twisted around the rusty Lumian stands that sprouted from the tiles. Statues and pillars lay in pieces on the floor. The front of the building was completely collapsed. They entered a stairwell that swept down in a wide arc. At the bottom of the stairs, a passage ran a short distance in either direction and then ended in piles of rubble. Madame Torig marched straight ahead and inserted the tip of her broken cane into a hole in the rock before him. Concealed doors sprang open, revealing armed guards waiting within. A stocky, balding man rushed forward and engaged Madame Torig in a heated conversation, all the while gesturing furiously toward them. Finally, he saluted Madame Torig in a cursory manner and ambled off into a tight passage. Madame Torig moved after him, and they followed her into crevice so narrow only one person at a time could go through. It twisted back and forth on itself like a snake, and the corners were so sharp they had to tilt Kate's letter at a steep angle just to get around them. There were openings in the ceiling from which guards watched their progress. At points they had to wait for doors to open and then close behind them. Large spouts along the wall indicated they could flood these chambers at will. The inner...
Large spouts along the wall indicated they could flood these chambers at will. The narrow entry channel was part of a sophisticated defense system. The channel opened into a wider chamber where Madame Torig waited for them before an arched double door. As they stepped beside her, she pushed firmly on the doors and swung them wide. Corvin stopped short. After many days in the near darkness, the scene before his eyes completely overwhelmed him. Stretched out at his feet was a deep cavern that housed a compact city. Each building glowed softly in the muted light of a ceiling so crowded with lumians it was impossible to distinguish any one globe. The main streets ran around the sides of the bowl in tight rings. Narrow lanes connected the circular roads, winding down the steep sides in tight curves like snakes slithering toward the central plaza at the bottom. Small whitewashed dwellings were evenly spaced along terraces cut into the floor of the cavern. It was surreal, like a painting. This is our city of refuge, Madame Torg said proudly. We welcome those who escape the tyranny of the palace. It's beautiful, George spoke quietly. With all these Lumians, it gives me hope that Kadir may once again shine in all its glory. Madame Torig frowned. She pointed to the left, where a creek ran along the bottom of a deep channel next to the cavern wall. That is what remains of the water that flows in from under the library, the water sent by the palace in Kadir. They filled our city with water and many of our people drowned. She made the special sign again with her hands. But now we have prepared a deep channel and outlet in case that water rises again. Have the people returned? Jord asked. I don't see anyone. The day has not yet begun, and those along our path were instructed to stay indoors. For your safety and for ours, it is best if you pass unseen. Come, we will follow the water channel. The road circled the edges of the cavern behind the outer ring of dwellings. Behind each home was a small patch of vegetation. Some had vines with clusters of yellow fruit trailing over the walls. A baby's cry rose above the burble of water running alongside the road, and a woman sang a lullaby. These are sounds I have not heard for a long time. George's voice choked with emotion. Madame Torig looked back. I have heard of your great loss, Jorid, and I offer you my sympathy. Perhaps you should consider staying here with us. Jorid's response was cut off by strains of music that drifted in from around the corner. They rounded the bend and found a small boy in tattered clothing sitting on a high wall. His grubby legs kept time to the music as he blew across a set of graduated pipes. The mournful sound wrapped them in its melancholy strains. Gavin, come here. Madame Torg looked stern, but Corvin heard the motherly love in her voice. The boy jumped down and landed lightly in front of the old woman, all the while playing his pipes without missing a note. Madame Torg gently pushed the flute down from his lips. He smiled at her, but his blue eyes betrayed an abiding sadness. Gavin, did you not hear that everyone was to remain out of sight for a while? The boy looked at the ground and ran a soiled hand through his damp, matted hair. Jord gave a soft whistle and smiled at the young boy. Gavin's eyes brightened. He ran back to the priest and hugged Jord around his waist. He bent his knees and said something quietly to the boy. Gavin reached into the priest's cloak and fished out a small object in bright yellow paper. Jord straightened and looked at Madame Torig. We must allow the little children that suffer to come to us for comfort. Madame Torg nodded, but shot Gavin a warning look. The boy ignored her and came up beside Corvin, his hands patting the sides of Corvin's cloak. Corvin tried to pull away from his probing fingers. Gavin, 
Madame Torig stepped toward them. I have warned you about taking things that do not belong to you. The boy's hands reached the hammer, and he looked up at Corvin, a puzzled expression on his face. Madame Torig stomped her foot, and the child whirled and disappeared over a stone wall, grabbing a yellow fruit off a vine on his way. He means no harm, Madame Torig said. He lives wild, up in the rooms, and has found a way to come and go as he pleases. Some say he lost his family in the flood. No one knows for sure, for he has never spoken. She turned and headed down the road. Come along now. We must keep moving. Ahead, the road branched off into an enclosed passage that followed the watercourse. The sound of the river grew louder. They rounded a corner and found themselves at the top of a steep flight of stairs, slick with the spray from a waterfall that plunged alongside to the rocks below. We have much to do here to complete the outlet channel, so these steps can be slippery. You'd best turn sideways and carry her down together. Let me go first and caress the light. She descended the stairs and pushed a long pole up into the shadows. A large lumion hanging from a ring over her head began to glow as Madame Torig gently stroked the tendrils that hung around the globe with the soft flaps at the end of the pole. Satisfied, she leaned the pole back against the wall and motioned for them to join her. Large stone blocks were stacked near the base of the stairs where they had been cut from the side of the cave. A deep lagoon swirled behind a partially completed wall. They followed the path down and around to where a sluice gate allowed the water from the lagoon to rush out through a low opening in the cavern wall. Madame Torig turned to speak to them, but Corbin couldn't catch what she was saying over the sound of the rushing water. She motioned for them to wait and disappeared around the lagoon. A low rumble, as if a train were passing, coursed through the rock. The water ebbed to a trickle. Madame Torig reappeared. There's not much time before I must release the water. Follow the channel to its end, and you will find yourself directly under the lower bridge. A stairway will take you up to the road. Jord, you will know where to go from there. Jord spoke up. Thank you, Madame Torig. Your kindness will not be forgotten. We will hold your well-being in good faith. I know you will, Jord. Thank you. She turned to Corvin, put a hand on either side of his face, and pulled him close. I understand that you must fulfill your vow to this girl, but I ask you to do whatever is in your power to rescue Tirith. It is important to the core. She glanced back at Jorid and then whispered, It is important to me as well, for Tirith is the only relation I have left in the core. She pulled back to look at him, eyes full of tears. Corvin nodded. I promise, Madame Torig. I promise on the hammer. Her bushy eyebrows shot up, and then she smiled. Thank you, Corvan. She looked to Jorid. Take the girl to Jockton in the Molokar settlement. His counterpart is gifted in healing, and he is the only one left with an understanding of the outer passages. She gestured toward the empty watercourse, then touched Corvan's arm. Do not lose the medallion the girl holds. When you become the Corvan, you will need it to complement the hammer. Corvin tried to respond, but she waved them on. Move quickly now. The lagoon walls are not completed, and the water will soon overflow the gate. Holding tight to the front of the litter, Corvin stepped down into a channel still broken and rough from the cuts of fire sticks. He felt Jord's reluctance through the poles. Water dripped from the ceiling, which was getting lower as they progressed. Corvin crouched to avoid hitting his head. How much farther? Jord's anxious voice reverberated in the tight space. I can't tell, Corvin responded, but we need to keep moving before the water comes back and drowns us in here. It was the wrong thing to say. Jorid pushed so hard that Corvin had to run to avoid being driven to his knees. 
It was a good thing, for just as they cleared the tunnel's end and climbed out of the channel, water roared back from the hole and out into the main river. Corvin glanced back and found Jord's white face dripping with water and sweat. A long flight of narrow stairs brought them up to a low wall that kept the travelers on the main road safely away from the water. Setting Kate's litter on the wall, they climbed onto the road. Corvin had just grabbed the poles when they heard a familiar warbling cry from the edge of the city. They are close, Jord hissed, to the bridge, quickly. Kate's body bounced roughly on the litter as they ran forward. Ahead, the entrance to the bridge was flanked by two large stone pillars. A shadow moved out to meet them. There was urgency in the gray man's voice. Quickly, run across. The bridge will shake, but I promise you it will not fall. Do not stop. He pushed Corvin past him out onto a metal suspension bridge that curved gently out toward the center. The metal panels of its floor snapped and sprang as they ran. They were nearly to the middle when a trumpet blast rolled across the water. Stop in the name of the Watcher, a deep voice boomed out. They kept running over the center of the bridge, its panels slipping beneath their feet and pitching them toward the chain railings. Stop, Kalian, stop in the name of the Rakash. The rasping voice crawled up Corvin's spine and into his head. How did it know his name? Something moved in the shadows ahead. The bridge pitched and rolled between their feet as they staggered off the end. Another of the gray men stepped out to meet them. Corvin looked back. Two red-cloaked guards had just reached the crest of the bridge, the gangly white form of the seeker just behind them. The guards slowed as the shifting panels below their feet threw them from side to side. The seeker staggered against the chains. Suddenly all three disappeared along with the center section of the bridge. The screams of terror from the soldiers lasted only a second and then were replaced by the rush of the water. George spoke into the heavy silence. Did they all? Yes, the gray man replied. The seeker? Gone, into the water. May it sweep him into the abyss. The gray man slipped away into the gloom. A light push on the poles of the litter was all Corvin needed to get him moving. The evil voice still echoed in his head. They walked in silence along the river wall. Corvin glanced down into the dark water rushing by. For a brief moment, he was sure he saw a pair of white eyes moving along in the current and staring back at him.